Our gospel lesson is found in Matthew chapter 26, reading verses 36 through 46. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I'll go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks for your word. It is light and it is truth. And it is only in your light that we see and know any light. We ask that you scatter our darkness and that you speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Recently, the Wall Street Journal published an article citing evidence that Americans have a newfound interest in prayer. It's Google searches that reveal it, but Americans, due to the crisis in our culture, the trouble and trial of our circumstances with the coronavirus, are interested once again in the topic of prayer. The American soul is opening to God. And so over the past weeks, we've discussed what good prayer looks like And we noted in Matthew 6 that Jesus doesn't just commend any type of prayer. And this is what's critical for us in this moment. That Jesus isn't just interested in spirituality, in someone who just prays vaguely to some particular God. But Jesus is interested in prayers to a father who we've been reconciled to through him, the son, and that Jesus teaches us to pray in particular way. And so it's not just a vague spirituality, but he wants us to have a certain good spirituality that he defines. He critiques in Matthew 6 those who pray in certain ways, and he's guiding us into what good communion with God looks like. He provides a model for us in the Sermon on the Mount. This, of course, is not the only prayer that a Christian can or might say in life, but it is a model that's to direct our desires, that is to shape our supplications, and also is to orient our approach to God. It provides the structure in which we can build an actually healthy prayer life. And so this prayer is worthy of detailed and very slow, patient attention. 
to inform the shape and the structure of our own prayers. We've noted that the prayer begins with a particular address, our Father, an address we only make in and through the Son who reconciles us to this God. There are then two sets of supplications, the first set of three and the second set of three, and the prayer begins with a request that God would hallow his name on the earth as it is in heaven, that God would make his kingdom to come on the earth as it is in heaven, that God would make his will to be done on the earth as it is in heaven. That the prayer begins instructing us that we are to be concerned with God's great purposes to redeem the earth and to make all things new. This is the preoccupation of Christian prayer. And then we turn in the second set of petitions, also three requests here, to our own personal needs. There's a prayer for daily bread. And then a second prayer that just as necessary as daily bread is forgiveness. And then the final petition that we come to today, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And Jesus is saying that this request, that we not be led into temptation, that we be delivered from that trial in that moment, that this too is part of good prayer, that we have to learn to be watchful and to pray in this way. And perhaps we don't always think of this immediately when we pray. Why is it that we need to? Oscar Wilde, the Irish playwright, captures it perhaps best. He once said this, I can resist everything but temptation. Augustine captures somewhat of the same emphasis as he struggled with Christianity in his early days. He said, God, deliver me from my sins, but not yet. (laughs) And we can all understand that, that temptation is real. Sin and evil are real. And they're not just things outside of us, that we're also invested in them. And so we need to learn to pray with Jesus that we not be led into temptation and that we be delivered from evil and the evil one. We've seen in this model prayer that the phrases Jesus teaches us are compressed and distilled theology. They're laden with cargo for us. And the final petition of the prayer is really no different. So what exactly is Jesus drawing us into? What is the world of meaning around these simple words? And there's four things that we'll discuss this morning. First, when we ask that God deliver us from temptation and evil, we're acknowledging the danger in which we live. Two words, temptation and evil, and then the verb to save us, What we're acknowledging in those words is that the world is not in line with God's glory, that the world is not in line with God's rule, that the world is not in line with God's will, that there is danger around us, that things are not right here on the earth. We can be enticed, we can be allured, we can be induced to do wrong by external factors. The Bible calls these the world and the devil, that there is danger around us. But it's also important, critical for us to recognize 
that the danger is not just around us, but also inside of us. Temptations arise not just from our circumstances, from the world and from the devil, but they also arise from our sinful appetites, that we have indwelling sin. And so we have the world, we have our flesh, and we have the devil, and these present a very dangerous combination. And so what exactly do we do, though? It can all seem overwhelming when we recognize the arsenal that works against us and we acknowledge the danger and the ruin that really surrounds us. Several years ago when I was a church planter in Washington, I went to lunch with a young man who had begun attending the church. We met in a restaurant and he was seated in the back and during lunch I noticed that he was constantly scanning the restaurant. He had his back against the wall and he was perfectly positioned And he seemed distracted, and I finally asked him, I said, hey, is everything okay? And he said, sorry, it's an occupational hazard. He worked for the Secret Service, and he had been trained to constantly have a situational awareness of where he was. And friends, this is what God calls us to as well. It's what Jesus means with the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane when he calls them to watch and to pray that they not be led into temptation to be watchful, mindful, situationally aware, and to pray. This is how we acknowledge the danger in which we live. We watch and we pray. Second, in this prayer, we're also confessing our vulnerability. We go beyond just acknowledging danger, and we also see our own weakness. It's an admission that we're susceptible It's not in our power to engage evil or the evil one. We natively don't have that strength. We ask God for help because we lack something in ourselves. There's a fundamental deficiency in our sinful nature. But why is it that we're so vulnerable to temptation? It's important to digest a bit the anatomy of temptation and to understand how it works. And in Matthew 4, before Jesus begins his public ministry, he encounters the evil one, Satan, the devil, in the wilderness. He is there fasting for 40 days, preparing for his vocation that would lead him to the cross. And there's a series of three temptations that help us understand something of the anatomy of temptation and appreciate its power. Three things that we'll consider here. First, temptation typically plays on good things. The first temptation that Jesus meets from Satan is to turn stones into loaves of bread. God has taught us to pray for daily bread and that we're to receive the good gifts of creation with thanksgiving. There's nothing wrong with daily bread. In fact, we can delight in it and receive it with joy and thanksgiving as God sustains and nurtures us through these means. But what happens in this exchange is that the devil plays off of Jesus and attempts to make him anxious about his daily bread, to bring him into a situation where that anxiety would be expressed by performing a miracle. And this is where something good has become something evil. 
And friends, this is the subtle nature of temptation, where something good becomes the potential for stumbling. This means that temptation is always easy to justify. Because we can say, well, this is a good thing, and God allows me to enjoy it, so why can't I just take it a little bit further? Plays on good things, and it becomes subtle. Second, temptation's also deceptive. The devil encourages Jesus to throw himself from the temple in the second temptation and to see if God will rescue him. He actually quotes scriptures at Jesus. He's attempting to have Jesus test God. And with that test comes the question, is God going to be faithful to you? The devil, of course, subtly mishandles those scriptures in order to draw Jesus into wrongdoing. It's deception. C.S. Lewis, in his classic little work, The Screwtape Letters, warns people at the beginning of the book, readers are advised to remember that the devil is a liar. (laughs) And we must always remember that in the midst of any temptation that we're being presented with things that are not true. There's deception. The third part of this, though, is that temptation also offers shortcuts. Satan offers Jesus the nations of the earth, takes him up on a high mountain and says, all this can be yours if you'll simply bow down and worship me. So for the cost of idolatry, I will give you all of this. It's interesting, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus goes up on a mountain with the disciples, and he commissions them to go out into all the nations to declare that he is the Lord of all creation because it belongs to him. By death and resurrection, he won it. And so what the devil offers Jesus here is a shortcut. That rather than going in the way of suffering and sacrificial service, that rather in going in the way of death, that he could shortcut and he could have this. Evil and sin promise what they can never provide. It's the shortcut to it in which Jesus was invited to give short shrift to his vocation and mission and his faithfulness to God and righteousness. And friends, that's the anatomy, at least part of it, as to how temptation works in our lives, the ways that we're assaulted. And we need to recognize that anatomy, and we also need to recognize that the confession of vulnerability to these schemes and the confession of weakness in the midst of these schemes is what best arms us in the onslaught of temptation. So we confess that vulnerability. Third thing involved in this request is that we also call for help. Deliver us from evil. That is that we be delivered in the midst of all temptation, that God would send us help and aid. When we ask that God not lead us into temptation, we're not saying that God himself tempts us. God tests us. Satan tempts us. This request does not ask God to refrain from tempting us, but rather it asks God to preserve us and to guard us in the midst of all real temptation. We're asking that he deliver us so that we not be engulfed and overwhelmed and overcome by sin from the evil that we're tempted to do. Calvin points out that in this call for help, we're also just not asking to be rescued. But when we call to God for this help, we're also anticipating something. 
We're anticipating new and daily increases of grace. And this is what we must do. In the midst of all of our temptations and the many ways in which we're attacked and we're assailed by this, is that we have to look to God for daily grace, daily increases that would sustain us and to help us. Paul reminds us of this in 1 Corinthians 10 as he works with a very dysfunctional congregation, many struggles and temptations. In verse 13, he says this, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And God is faithful, and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And friends, this is what we must do in the middle of temptation, is to go to God and believe that he is faithful, that there is no deception in him, there is no lie, but rather that he provides those daily increases of grace, that he can give that new grace to sustain you and to nurture you, to strengthen you in the midst of that battle and of that struggle. That ultimately, the failure in temptation is one of belief, that the lie we tell ourselves is that God's grace is not sufficient for us in that moment. But he is always faithful. And so trust him and go to him. In all the vulnerability, go to him and cry out for help. Help me. It's that simple. The final part of being able to pray these words And perhaps most importantly, when we say these words and we ask to be delivered from evil, is that we also recall the victor against and over all temptation. In the middle of our struggles and trials, which are real, in the middle of our trouble and our stumbling, it is important to remember that sin is a threatening and real power. However, sin is also a defeated power. Our Lord Jesus was tempted, Matthew 4, which we've discussed, three times and three times he was faithful. And then through his earthly ministry, he was tempted, even by the disciples to desist and to have the kingdom come in another way. And then in Matthew 26, this final moment of the Garden of Gethsemane, three times Jesus prays. And he resists temptation. He is the righteous one. He is the faithful one. He then goes to the cross and he offers himself there to God, taking on the weight of your failures and my failures. Those are all subsumed into him. And the judgment of God is satisfied in him. And friends, your sins and the power of temptation is defeated there. And we don't fight temptation in order to somehow then be forgiven. No, we're forgiven by Jesus and what he does on the cross. And then we're free to struggle against temptation. We go out to battle with all the enticements, all the allurements, all the inducements, and we go out in him, under his lead, knowing that he is the victor. And so, in this short, condensed, compressed prayer, we learn to acknowledge the danger of our circumstances. 
We learn to confess the vulnerability that we have. We learn to call for help. And we learn to recall the great victor. And it's in him that we're able to do all of these things. It's he who taught us to pray, deliver us from evil. And so, friends, let's ask God to teach us to pray that way and to live in communion with him in that way as well. Let's ask him. Father, we do give thanks that our Lord Jesus has taught us to pray, that he gives us the shape and the structure of good prayer. And we ask that you would teach us all that it means to say, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. May we acknowledge the danger. May we confess our weakness and vulnerability, our susceptibility. May we learn what it is to call to you for help from that weakness. And may we always recall the great victor who trampled down the evil one and defeated him once and for all. And in him, may we find our strength. By your mercy, help us, O God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.